Welcome to the State of Everything Extra Tim, where we speak to the fund manager, Tim Price of PriceValuePartners.com. Hi, Tim. How's it going? Hi, Paul. Very good. How's things with you? Yeah, very good. What's floating your boat this week? Uh, you got a spare couple of days. So what's, what's <laughs> been going on? Well, yesterday I had the pleasure of having a, a, a lunch at my, my local, which is the Washington well, uh, on, on England's Lane, Hampstead. Fant- fantastic. Um, and so that was quite cheery. So very, very slowly getting back to normal. Um, yeah, I but, didn't. But, I didn't get the invite. Did, did it maybe it was, went it into was spam? Family, family only. I'm afraid. <laughs> oh, right, only. Okay. Sorry. Oh, uh, I, I think of myself as family. Well, but, well yeah. okay, and uh, blood relatives only. I'm afraid. <laughs> but you were there in spirit, even though you didn't get the invite, and you weren't aware of it. <laughs> but we'll do something. We'll do something up your neck of the woods uh, shortly. I hope for sure. Um, so what's what's been going on? Um, so the, the the themes that interest me investment wise, I mean, obviously the the dark shadow of of COVID nineteen sort of hangs over everything still. But um, actually, on that point, before we get onto the investment stuff, and it's it's obviously you know meaningfully related anyway. I went to I walked into. Um, central through central London a few days ago to go to our office, which is in Hatton Garden, uh, where we have some sort of um, serviced offices. Um, although I work from home, and so my my route there, which is rather nice, it's a gorgeous sunny day. So I mm. went over Primrose Hill, through Regent's Park, and then down, walked down Tottenham Court Road, and then across High Holborn. I re- and this was on when was this? This was on Monday. Um, I reckon. The footfall, sort of mid mid morning to lunchtime, i.e. the sort of pedestrian traffic, if not the if not the vehicular traffic, was between five and ten percent of what I would normally expect to see on a, a this kind of this kind of time of year. Um, in other words, central London is a desert; it's a wasteland, and anybody I think who's expecting or even using the phrase V-shaped recovery is delusional in the UK. Yeah. Yeah, it does feel like... I don't know if you've been out and about yourself. Um, not into central London, funny yeah. enough, but it just does feel like people are still staying in. And I think the... I mean, my, my, my strong take is that the... You know, basically the, the government, I think probably most people, even the most staunch conservative supporters would concede that the government has not had a good crisis. It's not handled the its response to the pandemic. Well, and maybe the response is the problem. It's not the pandemic. It's the, the government overreaction to it. But my, my, my take now would be that the something called the sunk costs fallacy, which we may or may not have discussed before, will ensure that, you know, rather than it would be fantastic, for example, if if if, if Boris or someone in government could acknowledge that mistakes have been made rather than just plow on trying to desperately spin this one. I don't think anyone is buying it. Mm. And it would be it would, so it'd be great if we could get some kind of acknowledgement of humility and of sort of you know errors made because no one's perfect. I think the, the I think the people of the UK would be very forgiving in that circumstance personally. But rather than get that, I think we're going to get more of the same sort of you know punishment in terms of media presentation. The punishment beatings will continue until morale improves. And the so as a result of that, we won't get an apology. We will get the the infor into the enforcement of stuff like in a mandatory face mask in shops, where the science behind it is frankly dubious at best. And a potential second wave is what, yeah, what seems well, to be. This, this is this is the grisly thing globally that there there does. I mean, I'm not sure you'd call it a second wave or not, but the idea that I mean, clearly this this all countries are different. All you know, all governments, I guess, are, have been different in their response. Um, but it does feel from the news flow as if, you know, 
the the, the tide is sort of turning against us for for a bit now, and it's it, it's just a sort of slightly sickly feeling. So with, with that in mind, the um, the I guess the question I would I would then pose is. You know, there's the certain cultural things going on that any anybody will have seen. Things like you know the the rise of cancel culture, the woke culture, the BLM, you know, riots. Well, I've just know, seen statues. that thing about the cancel culture. What is that about? Uh, I I think it's well, I think it's all part of the same thing. So the the person I would give credit for for highlighting this and the origin of it is, is Sean Corrigan, the economist Sean Corrigan, who is the first person I met or knew to use this phrase of Gramsci's, Gramsci's long march through the institutions. So the, the problem would appear to be that basically higher education, the reason for all of this nonsensical, you know, f- borderline fascistic behaviour by, well, it suffuses academe and it suffuses academe because, as, as, you know, to, to use that, that phrase of Gramsci's, there has been a long march by the, by the Marxist left through every fibre of really our establishment for decades now. And they now completely suffuse the culture. So whether you're talking about the left in mainstream media, you know, and we, know, we know the papers, we know the state broadcasters involved, or whether it's um, schools you know, where teachers have now secured a pay rise for having done nothing for the last three months, but sit on their asses and, 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 and be paid for simply, for simply living, for simply existing. Um, Higher education is is perhaps the worst aspect of it, and as a result of all of this, what one what well one out what outcome of this has been that now you know it, it it's far from free speech. It's more like you know I, I reserve the right to be offended at whatever I arbitrarily feel offended by. So it's the exact opposite of free speech. It's basically you, know, you can say what you like as long as I'm not offended by it. But I reserve the right to be offended by anything. There's a great. Uh, live at the Apollo uh, comedian who does a whole thing about being offended. I'm going to have to find it for one of our future episodes because it's it's absolutely brilliant where he just sort of tears that whole thing apart. I don't recall, I don't recall his name, but there was a great, I think, Scottish stand-up comedian on Jeff Norcott's podcast a few weeks ago, and he was superb on this. And he, he has his own sort of routines about just the complete absurdity of all this posturing. Uh, and I wonder, so I wonder whether... What one of the reasons it's been so prominent over the last, you know, say month or so is because everyone's been under house arrest. So mm. you know, the, it turns out that if you basically lock everybody up for for months on end, uh, with little prospect of sort of meaningful improvement, uh, and they're young, and they're basically, if they were employed, then they may not be when they finally get released, or they they were employed to begin with, or they're school children and students, but they're basically under house arrest. And then the weather turns, we get a nice spot of weather. Then fun, funnily enough, everyone likes, likes to go out on a bit of a riot. And then the statues yeah. start falling and um, people start taking the knee. And the whole thing's, I just wonder to what extent this is a, has been at, we'll never know probably because there's never any counterfactual. But I wonder whether this has all been a function of lockdown or in large part a function of lockdown. Darren Brown did a very interesting experiment where he covered the faces of the audience and then got them to vote on the outcome of uh, an, a story yeah. whereby uh, they're all watching this 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 story unfold where one of the lead uh, protagonists or the protagonist was was his outcomes were basically being decided by this group mm. and because the group had their faces covered they would increasingly make his life worse and worse 
So as an individual, you know, people would Because they, they didn't literally see the consequences. Yeah, well, because they were hidden from it and as part of a group. So they would say, they, it, it, he was an actor and they didn't yeah. know that, actually. And what, what this kind of spoiler alert... Um, mm. It, the, the actions like caused him to to you know die in vert commas yeah. and and afterwards you know when they're, when they're being interviewed it's like they were like what was I doing I did it sounds like the Stanford prison experiment it is it's very similar it's very interesting so what you're saying about people you know being cooped up and then given the opportunity to go out and wear masks and express how how they feel about the world it's no, not surprising that this that we're seeing a rupture I mean when when they encourage everyone to wear masks it's probably when the masks they were envisaging people wearing <laughs> yeah exactly but you just you just wonder to what extent i mean you wonder to what extent things like brexit and then and then the rise of trump are also are also sort of subtly interconnected um so I, I've just put sort of next week's commentary more or less to bed. And what, what, what's it about? Last so, week's was a cracker. My thank, goodness me! Thank you very much. Um, so basically, so I'm, I'm starting off with um, Yuval Noah Harari, which is Sapiens. Yes. And the point about I mean, I apologise for sort of banging on about this, but Sapiens is still the most probably the most intriguing, uh, intriguing intellectual uh, exercise uh, of a book that I've, I've come across in the last decade or so. And the premise behind Sapiens is, for anyone that is unaware of it, and, and Harari's, he's a variety of things, but he's, he's a historian. And he, he sets out to sort of answer the question, why is it that, you know, given that there are about half a dozen competing early hominids, i.e. sort of ancient, ancient types of man, why is it that Homo sapiens basically beat out all the rest? So the others don't exist. They've, they've all for whatever reason, they've, they've just fallen off the sort of evolutionary ladder. But Homo sapiens won against all the rest. And that this will probably never be proven, because we're going back you know, hundreds of thousands of years. But his suggestion, which I find extremely intriguing and, and actually quite compelling, is that what, what discriminates us from all of our sort of forebears, our ancient forebears, is our fascination with capacity for and appreciation of narrative i.e. telling stories and then and this is sort of how the sort of the commentary piece goes on so in the book he uses the example of you now if you've got a, a, a tiny sort of village say 100 people that little village has no need whatsoever for external administration for you know for top-down administration because it organizes itself it doesn't need you know, a hierarchy of appointees from you know it doesn't need technocrats or bureaucrats pretty much it can just get by on its own but a country of say whatever we are say call it 70 million people does require some form of um external organization that the country for example if, if it needs a government for example if for no other reason and there are certain things that the free market won't provide assuming we live in a free market you know, a free enterprise system anyway which is debatable now and so there are certain things like streetlights and armies that the free market can't or won't provide. So government is, has, to, has to step in and, 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 and arrange those. Anyhow, so the, the sort of where, we, where, really, where the rubber hits the road in this argument is every so often we're going to need to defend ourselves. So we're going to need to, I mean, at the moment, you know, the, the likelihood or the possibility of a not so much a cold war because we're already there, but a, potentially even a hot war with the likes of China is, is not to be discounted. In other words, it's, it's a possibility. I hope, obviously don't hope it doesn't happen, but it's, it's nevertheless a, a real concern. And so, and this is, this is something again that Harari addresses in the book, Sapiens. If you're a country and you want to defend yourself, how do you persuade a cohort of young 
men, and it will be young men basically, um, to go off and fight and potentially die, how do you motivate them to do that? And the answer is you tell them stories, you create national myths. And then this leads on in my piece to, you know, we used to have a national myth that was a very powerful one about the, you know, the, the, the blitz spirit. Um, and there are two photographs that you may have seen, and I, I use one of them in the, in the commentary piece, but there's two that you may have seen. One is a picture of a, a photo of a milkman just cheerily going on his way, delivering um, milk bottles through uh, a road that's been completely obliterated by the Luftwaffe oh, during an aerial raid on London. And then I, I was looking, doing a tiny bit of research, and then it transpires that the photo was itself staged. So in other words, it wasn't, no. it wasn't, it wasn't quite legit. It was slightly, slightly staged for the camera uh, to get around the censorship at the time. So that, that calls into question the whole, you know, truth, truthiness of stuff. And the other one, which, which is a legitimate photo, is there's a photo of St. Paul's during the Blitz. And it basically there's fires and smoke all around, but the, the dome is, is just stands sort of preeminent and, and intact. And it's a very, a very powerful icon. So anyhow, so, so I say, well, we had the Blitz spirit, but what's happened to it? Because after three months of, you know, basically enforced uh, house arrest and del- a deluge of government propaganda, I'm not seeing much evidence of the Blitz spirit anymore. People, people seem to have become by and large cowed and very, very worryingly submissive, worryingly quick to just adopt, you know, to just respond and accept whatever government prohibitions have arrived, which I find desperately concerning. Because this is not, this is not, you know, there's if you were, I, I, James Dellingpole, I think, said something similar on one of his um, podcasts recently, which is, I used to th- believe in the Blitz spirit, but now it's all gone. And everyone's just become basically COVID bedwetters. It, it was interesting that he actually said, I think it was his son who's in Asia would would point out that they would, given what happened in Asia with the virus, they, they would be a response to the second wave. But he said the second wave wouldn't be as bad as as was made out, but there would be a response to it, which is very interesting that we're seeing this this kind of, Yes, there's a vaccine. Yes, it's coming soon. Yes, it's really effective. But yes, there's a second wave. So every time there's a bit of good news, there's a bit of bad news that seems to just follow it. Like, yeah, the vaccine's there, but it won't. It's, this is going to go on for years. Actually, it's going to go on for decades. Actually, it'll never go or whatever. Yeah, yeah, it'll, it'll always be with us. But, but that's that's the same as the sort of the 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 progression of all of the other coronaviruses in history. Which yeah. I mean, so presumably there's one point in the distant past when. No, a version of the common cold, you know, took out loads of people, and everyone goes, "Oh my god!" And then, but we just slowly, slowly adapt. But yeah. the for for me, the central point of this, well, one of one of them is I, again, it's all part of the narrative, the sort of you know the the sapien style narrative, which is debatable and subjective. But I just wonder again, not that there'll ever be a, a counterfactual to to prove so. It can only ever be speculative. But I just wonder whether things would have transpired way differently if. Let, I mean, it does, it's academic whether this this virus was bioengineered or arose spontaneously through just insanitary practices. It doesn't really matter anymore because the damage has been done. Though it would be nice to know for, for for future reference. Anyhow, whatever its origin, it would be interesting to see what would have happened as a thought experiment if it had arisen not in a basically a, a basically one of the worst places on earth in terms of democracy or lack thereof human rights animal rights environmental you know safety all this kind of stuff respect for the environment if instead of happening in china and in a place where uh, householders who were at risk were basically welded into their own homes 
So in other words, if it had, if it had, if it had arisen, not there, but instead in somewhere like Switzerland, where I'm sure they would have just gone about it in an orderly, calm manner, we may never have had to have the lockdown in the first place. Mm. But because of its origin and the way the news flow developed, and then, of course, the footage in Italy and North Italy and the hospitals being overrun, by that stage, it probably didn't matter what um, Professor Pantsdown said about, you know, on, on, the, on the SAGE committee, because lockdown by that point may well have been more or less inevitable for political reasons. There's a, an interesting story being propagated about the number of cases in America. And of course, we can't. I mean, the US is having a, I mean, we're having a bad crisis, but the America's having a disastrous one. Yeah, but then, then you could argue that. What, what, what I'm not getting here is, yes, the number of cases are going up, but are the... But number- they're going up because the number of tests is going up. Well, but the number of tests is, is, is not, is, 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 but I don't know what the state of the tests is. And exactly. this is, this really is the, is the heart of the problem. The people I would give real credit to, um, I don't know if you've seen Lockdown, Lockdown TV by Unheard. Uh, they, I've, they, I had a couple of, yeah, I've said a couple of things of this. They've like provided them, some good. excellent ongoing coverage. I mean, The Spectator yeah. as a magazine has provided some excellent coverage, Dr. John Lee and others. But uh, uh, you know, Lockdown TV has also been outstanding. And they've just given you know, a perspective that the mainstream media seems incapable of providing on, on, under its own devices, mm. so under its own steam. And the, the one I saw most recently was a professor, um, Carl Hennigan from Oxford. And he was just making the point that, so you've got Public Health England, you've got the NHS, and then you've got the ONS, and the government just generally sort of coordinating and pulling all these different strings. Public Health England, uh, it, this seems to be now accepted as, as fact. Public Health England, if you have tested a positive for coronavirus at any point, and then at any point in the future, you then die or are killed by anything. That will go down as a coronavirus death. So in other words, if you tested no, positive really? if you tested positive in January and you're hit by a bus and killed in December, that will be recorded as a COVID death. That is my understanding of this. Really? But, but it does, uh, whether or not that's literally the case, I mean, that's, yeah. just, that's, that's, a, that's a suggestion slash statement. Well, that's part but, of but the problem, we, isn't it? We, we just do, don't but, know. But what we do know is that Public Health England calculates its uh, mortality rates differently from the ONS, differently from the NHS. And it's like, this is just a, a disaster because by accident or by design, the government has basically ensured that the, all of, the, all of the, the data is garbage and it will be impossible to have a, a forensic account of this after the fact as to what happened when and why and how many were affected. You know, because we, we, can't, we don't even have commonality of statistics across the, the, the United Kingdom. So Ireland calculates its figures differently from England and Scotland and Wales. This is, I mean, this is an unmitigated disaster, completely unmitigated disaster in terms of trying to, trying to get a handle on what's happened so we yeah. can have some meaningful inquiry. And um, it, it, it just beggars belief. It absolutely beggars belief. And the, the thing that's particularly gr- brutal reading, and I think it is the John Lee piece in The Spectator from a, roughly a week or two weeks ago, he makes the point that, you know, we had a, a pandemic preparation uh, exercise conducted last year uh, by multiple players, by multiple countries. Really? And, you know, you know yeah, oh, yeah, I can, I can, I'll send you the article. It was, I made it part of the commentary a week or two weeks ago. And as part of that exercise, do you know which two countries scored highest on this exercise? <laughs> the US <laughs> and the UK. You couldn't make this stuff up. And we've, we, we've surely come nearest the bottom. So it's like the difference between fact and, you know, between... Where did Germany come? Well, I, I, honestly, I don't know. Yeah. Um, 
but it will be interesting to see you know, to see to see the full you know to see the full outcome. But this is just, I mean, so I I would probably immediately say, well, this is this is why I can I mean, so epidemiology and particularly the forecasting of it just seems like just bullshit science in the same way that economics is. Yeah, that you're dealing yeah. with all these people who've got you know such overconfidence in something that's not even a science to begin with. It's just it's speculation. Dixie Deville asked a very interesting question a while back about journalism and stories and and whether it should be regulated and and it led me we, we answered it we talked about it and it, afterwards I was just like really struck by it and I thought I need to do a bit more research and in doing so I think I'd like to revise what I think journalists and, and indeed politicians should be uh taught in and that is statistics and statistics particularly the Bayesian trap now I don't know if you've heard of a a YouTube channel called Veritasium, no. but they they are it, they tackle very interesting maths problems and and uh, in, in a very engaging way. And there's a, a, a one of them called the Bayesian trap, which I'll put a link to, that explains if a test is will show that you have a disease with ninety nine percent probability, mm. what does that actually mean? in terms of whether you have the disease or not. And, and false positives and all that kind of stuff. Well, yeah. And you're absolutely right that statistics has to be more, more, you know, ideally would be more, more broadly taught and accepted and understood. But, you know, that, that's, that's expecting something to happen out of the education system, which is probably a, a, a you know, remote hope. It reminds me of, and this is particularly relevant for the, for the, for journalism to the extent, because you see this all the time when, you know, a, a paper, because we know the way papers work, which is they try and maximize readers by, uh, basically by scaring people. If, if it's, if there's a, if there's an emotional angle, then, you know, what they say, if it bleeds, it leads. Yeah. So we're naturally, <laughs> we're naturally more drawn to sort of bad news than good news stories. So, so the, 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 the outcome might, or the story, the headline might be, say, you know, if you, if you, you know, X, Y, Z is like, say smoking, smoking or drinking um, makes your risk of succumbing to X, Y, Z uh, 10 times higher. But if the actual probability is basically being raised from 0.01% to 0.1%, it's still completely uh, irrelevant. It's yes, still statistically, it's statistically significant. In, insignificant. Well, that's the thing, The way that the thing's framed is everything. Just yes, absolutely. Statistically significant is different to significant. Or so pro- in statistics, prob- probabilistically significant. Yes. So yeah, the term they use is 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 p hacking. Something called p hacking. So is it is it that there's a a kind of like finger in the air level of statistically significant that makes it so that something passes a threshold and therefore within scientific journalism, they will say, oh, this is past this this threshold. And it it could be like, you know, 5% probability. If it goes above that, then they'll say this is statistically significant. Mm. But it could have absolutely no actual relevance. So in other words, it could be statistically significant that if you eat, you know, oranges, that your IQ would go up. But it might be by half an IQ point. So, or you might start growing pips or something. Yeah, you know, yeah. what might happen. Well, it's, exactly. it's, it's interesting though because your, th- your thought process citing Dixie is is the same as mine because the thing I then go on to say is well, we can't trust the government and we can't really trust the mainstream media anymore. And there's something that we were watching just the other night and there were two two things I've now seen on, on BBC channels. One of them is a thing called Trump's first year, the fourth estate. 
which I think was broadcast in June 2018 on BBC Two. And you can try and find it on iPlayer, but it's, of course, having since we've all paid for it, it's, it's a license fee pays, it's no longer available. So Yeah, uh, that so, is so, weird so, the way so, they so, do so, that. So, so sort that out. But basically, this, this was a documentary, a fly-on-the-wall documentary, where a, a crew just sort of watches from the sidelines at editorial meetings of the New York Times. And you may have seen there was a very high-profile resignation by one of the journalists at the New York Times about a week or so ago that, that got a lot of, lot of airplay. Um, and it, indicative, perhaps, of a, of a, a long overdue backlash against a like wokey, woke, wokey cultural crap. Um, but the Trump's first year thing was was scandalous, uh, and I'm amazed it was that they ever agreed to this. Because for anyone watching with a sense of objectivity, what it came across as was a, a group of basically like student journalists, basically just saying, "Well, we know Trump's guilty of something. We just don't know exactly what it is. So let's run with." stories that he's guilty and then we'll sort of fill in the gaps afterwards and the whole thing was just a, a travesty and then bbc um three uh, much more recently within the last few days and this is still available on iplayer for i think another year offered as trump in tweets and this is basically an okay. hour-long hour-long documentary about how donald trump got to use twitter and and, and the issues around that and it's quite entertaining but again to give you the a sign of just the sort of the the childish nature uh, of the coverage, um, they say all the tweets are real. Uh, I.e., they're, they're all genuine tweets that he actually wrote, but they're voiced over by like a like a. It sounds like a young a young a young girl pretending to be a clown as a, as a sort of an impression of, of of Donald Trump. So it, it goes directly directly to the lowest common denominator of sort of you know throwing throwing it's custard so pies. It's completely unnecessary, but it is what it is. And one thing that comes out from the Trump and tweets thing is that you, you've got you know Trump. Basically, was originally sort of you know he had a handler for Twitter because you know he didn't discover Twitter he was introduced to it and he had his own media social media team doing his tweets and then over time he says well actually I don't really need a team I'll do it myself and that's when things really got supercharged and it kind of changed the whole nature of political debate in the states and what what, what comes out of this it, it is quite funny uh, it, despite the sort of the outrageous bias that you, you have all these people working on the Hillary Clinton campaign and they are clearly just, they're just fighting the wrong war because they're playing according to conventional rules. Whereas, yeah. whereas Trump's just, 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 just dispense with the rule book. It's playing a different game entirely. And that, that sort of, that, that mismatch is very, very funny because they're basically saying, well, we kind of won that election. Well, actually, no, you didn't. He did. And they live with it, you know, suck it up and, and, and move on losers. And it's, it's, it's anyhow. So having started, with a, a sort of a, a diatribe about lack of trust in government, this you know the commentary this week then morphs to lack of trust in, in mainstream media, and here then we move to a, a shout out to you know one of our one of our most appreciative uh, fans and someone we we appreciate in turn, millionaire mentor, and so I was looking through his sort of back catalogue of tweets, and if you're looking for a way of trying to resolve this 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 ongoing problem with the media, which is basically they cannot be trusted. Mainstream media can no longer be trusted, assuming it ever could be. Then he offers some excellent advice. And what he advocates, for example, this is millionaire mentor at David I. Harrison on Twitter. Um, He says, basically, spend more time learning by rejecting the mainstream media, getting rid of your TV, signing up to Audible, which I I currently don't, but I think it's an Amazon service, uh, playing audio books whenever possible, Going ad free on YouTube, which I would definitely recommend because I, I hugely uh, prefer uh, ad free YouTube now. And it's about 10 quid a month, I think I'm paying for it. Limit social media to curated Twitter, in other words, carefully chosen 
um, people rather than just a blanket, follow everybody. Stop engaging with nonsense and not letting politics consume you. And that is a fabulous little concise little list of ways to improve the quality of your life. Getting rid of your TV is a step too far for me. I, 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 I still you know, have a radio in every room. They're all tuned to Radio 4, even though most times I'll turn it on, listen to what's happening, immediately turn it back off again because it's so <laughs> awful, it's so dreadful. But nevertheless, the move towards rejecting the mainstream media is undoubtedly the right thing to do. And for anyone that hasn't yet read it, um, I, I, I give it a, a sort of a reference in the commentary again. There's a piece, an, an excellent essay by a guy called Rolf Doberly, D-O-B-E-L-L-I. He's a Swiss uh, writer. And he has an essay you can find really easily if you just Google Rolf, R-O-L-F, Doberly, D-O-B-E-L-L-I, and then avoid news, you will get a PDF document. It's about 12 pages long, but it's, it's superbly written. And the, the essence of that piece is basically news is to the brain what sugar is to the body. We are all better off without it. And it's difficult going cold turkey, but nevertheless, if you can move in that direction, you'll just feel better for it. Brilliant. Um, so so the, the very last thing, just to sort of get things onto a, a, a brief, a briefly back onto a kind of an investment front is, <laughs> and I suppose it's a plug, it's just a, shower, it's a, a screeching handbrake turn to get back to relevance. Um, it's actually more of a plug to you. And we're just out of time. So until <laughs> oh, next time. Until next time. <laughs> But it's, it's, it's your, your world really more than mine. But it's basically, I think it's a legitimate uh, point of conclusion to come to, which is if you cannot trust the narratives that you're being fed by government or by the mainstream media, the one thing you can trust is price because price is set in a, a free exchange between, you know, between willing participants. And with that in mind, that doesn't mean that the price is necessarily correct, but it, it, all it does mean is it's non-negotiable. You know, you have to just have to accept that it, it is what it is. There is a superb tweet that I came across from a guy called Phil Back, who is the founder and CEO of something called SecLenX, uh, which I think operates in the ETF sphere. But anyhow, this is a, a recent Phil Back tweet, which is investing in 2020 when buying funds cost brackets fees brackets is the only relevant factor when buying stocks. Cost brackets valuation brackets is irrelevant, and that's 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 a hugely informed insight in thinking to like the retail investor's mindset that the retail investor will basically spend a year trying to find the lowest cost fund that gives access to a given sector or style, but they they will not spend a second trying to assess whether a, a, a listed company is expensive or not. Um, it goes out the window. And yet we're ultimately talking about the same thing. So I just found that a very pertinent comment. And of course, and just to finish on this one, it would be the one thing I'm acutely aware of now is that, you know, I think, I think the markets continue to be delusional. I think the big delusional risks are in bonds. There's still some fairly big delusional risks in most stocks. But the one thing I'm gratified to see is that while gold is on a bit of a tear, silver has now finally started following it. So silver is, silver is, behaving deliciously nicely at the moment for anyone that, that's long. There is a look about the US dollar that I am not very happy with at the moment. And Against what? Because the thing is, this is the issue with, with currencies. You always have to price one versus a another, unless you're pricing it in precious metal. The Swiss franc, really. But I think it's got a, it's got a, even the euro, it looks like the euro dollar could be breaking up and that, that tells you something. So I'm beginning to wonder whether we talked about how this would all play out. It may, might be with 
currency volatility potentially. Yeah. You know, even if the bond markets don't move, even if the stock markets seem yeah, well, this is the stable. this is the argument that the, that the central banks can can kick around the bond market till the cows come home. But the one market that's too big for even them to manipulate in the fullness of time is 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 um, forex. Yes, so it's too big. So just I'm on kind of alert that the the dollar could start to slip pretty hard, yeah. and and that might have ramifications back into the stock markets, and it'll also have ramifications for commodities too. Definitely, I suspect. definitely, and definitely. in a good way. In a good way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Basically, and and this could be what the the precious metals markets are foreseeing, S- signaling. Yeah, yeah. Exactly, exactly. So we had Akhil Patel on, and yes. um, that's going to be released on Sunday. Fantastic conversation with him. Really interesting, different perspective on where the markets might be going. Really surprising, actually. So talking about some fantastic opportunities really coming up. So I, I was surprised also because I was a little bit sceptical about the kind of long cycle theory of things, but he he, make, he makes a very good case for it. I must say I, yeah. I was quite won over by his uh, advocacy of that strategy. Yes, indeed. So I'm looking forward to posting that. So don't forget that. Um, we have got one more day for our competition, 100 at sotmpodcast.com. So please listen to our 100th episode and then enter the competition. So all you have to do is send your answer in via email and then it will be picked. The winner will be picked at random. Tim and I have got to meet up in the real world. We haven't done since lockdown. We got a, we got a copy of how to lose $100 million and other valuable advice um, to give away. And we're both going to sign it and that will go off to the lucky winner. Just before we go, we had a message from a pastoral farmer on Twitter who asked a question um, he was very nice about the podcast, said he's really enjoying them. But he says that he's perplexed by a word that Tim Price uses, and it's um, obligorated. And he said he doesn't know what that means. What does I've, it mean? I've never used the word obligorated. And I was like, thinking, <laughs> I, I didn't think you'd ever use that word. So I asked him when you used it, and he didn't come back. But I just thought I'd ask you on his behalf. It's so. the kind of word that Boris Johnson might well use. I'm not I'm not denying it might exist. It's just I can guarantee I've never used it. It might just be that the the audio went funny at that point. But anyway, he asked the question I thought I would ask you, but I didn't think you'd use that word. Maybe maybe obliterated, which is what the stock markets are about. To, about. <laughs> anyway, let's not, let's not go there. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Tim, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much for your thoughts. And we look forward to your weekly coming out on Monday, is it? Indeed. What's the title? Um, Ever get the feeling you've been cheated? (laughs) Right. Excellent stuff. Looking forward to the next one. Take care, Tim. Thank you so much. Thanks very much. All the best. All the best. Cheers. Bye. And thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And we'll catch you next time. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.